people living in cities are less happy than people living in the rural areas. And the biggest explanatory factor we found is this sense of community belonging. That in big, fast-paced cities where people are looking at their phones and their coffee cups while they're rushing to get from one meeting to another. In a small town, areas where people know each other, in neighborhoods, right. in smaller towns, well-connected neighborhoods, within large cities indeed, everybody you see you think of as your friend and you're not going to be rude to your friends, you're going to wave to your friends, you're going to let them go ahead of you. So a place with high social capital is where you treat everybody as though they were a friend. In other words, in places like that, your definition of a stranger is a friend you haven't met yet. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is the show where we explore the connection between money and work and happiness through the lens of my guests' expertise and or money journeys. I've got a great interview to share with you today. My guest is named John Helliwell. He is the editor of the World Happiness Report, and he is with us to talk about the lessons he's learned measuring happiness around the globe for the past eight years, which countries are happy, which countries aren't, and why? What's behind it all? All that coming up in just a few minutes. First, I want to say thank you to all the Crazy Money listeners who reached out this week to say hello. Hello, Mike and Monica Whalen Chambers. Thanks for sharing your kind words and feedback. Nice to be in touch with you after all these years. Hello, Steph Wilson from Vista Verde Ranch out there in Colorado. I'm glad you find Crazy Money a good companion to take with you on your grueling winter sports outings. I'm going to keep up the energy today so that you can keep your time going on your cross-country skiing. Hi, Colleen, a.k.a. the Green Darner of Bozeman, Montana. Thanks for saying hello on Instagram. I see you out there listening to Crazy Money while you replace a zipper on some very high-end hunting gear for your grateful customers. I appreciate it. Hey, Lawrence Henry, long time, buddy. Thanks for reaching out. And also, I want to say thank you to all the people who have joined the Crazy Money listeners group on that there Facebook. By all means, Google it up there or click on the link in the show notes. And when I say Google, I mean go to Facebook and search Crazy Money listeners and join the community, join the discussion. I share some articles that I find interesting and deep conversation ensues. This week, I shared a piece that I read that I found interesting about Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, who died at age of 46. And I, I just found it sad that, you know, life is short and doesn't matter how much money you have, you know, tragedy can happen. And my friend Susan Shackelford Arnold shared a piece from Forbes that went into great depth about the very sad decline that Tony had gone down the last few years of his life with addiction and substance abuse at a crazy level. And some kind of bizarre behavior that he just kind of spiraled into. And I think that actually wealth empowered him to do that. So I find the topic very, very interesting. And so much so that I reached out to the authors of that article, and I'm going to interview them in the next couple of days. And I'll have my conversation with them up next week. So thanks, Susan, for sharing that piece. It really was informative. All right, let's talk about John Helliwell and his work. What is the World Happiness Report? Well, John's going to give you a lot more details on that, but what it is is a landmark survey of the state of global happiness that ranks 156 countries by how happy their citizens perceive themselves to be. That's right. It's aggregated survey data. It's written by a group of independent experts acting in personal capacities. And I'm talking about experts like Jeffrey Sachs, the well-renowned developmental economist, and John himself, who is a renowned economist at the University of British Columbia there in Vancouver. It's been published since 2012 when the UN General Assembly invited countries to start measuring 
their citizens' happiness. And doesn't that make sense? After all, we measure gross national product. We measure gross domestic product. We measure the unemployment rate, average income, home sales, but not happiness. Now, all those things are probably contributors to happiness, but it's really not measuring the same thing now, is it? So I thought that, one, learning about the existence of this report was pretty cool, and then going in and actually reading it was informative at a different level. And so I really wanted to talk to John to get the insider scoop on what are the themes across countries that make us happy? What are the things that make us unhappy? And what can each of us do to improve our happiness, given that we don't necessarily pick the society in which we live? And in fact, near the end of the interview, I ask him very specifically, what could each of us do to make ourselves happier, assuming we couldn't move or change our societies? And his response is pretty profound. So I hope you'll stay tuned to hear that. Let me tell you a little bit more about John. John Helliwell received his PhD from St. John's College, Oxford. He is a professor emeritus of economics at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. In addition to a string of distinctions, John was visiting research fellow at Merton College, Oxford, and was a Fulbright fellow and Mackenzie King visiting professor of Canadian studies at Harvard. He's also a Rhodes Scholar. That's how he got to Oxford in the first place. So this is a really smart guy, and as you will hear, a very happy and upbeat individual, and I was honored to talk to him. By the way, at the beginning of the interview, you will hear me make reference to the fact that he shares his name with a distant cousin who is in a big 70s rock band, and you want to find out which one, you better stay tuned. Ladies and gentlemen, this is John Helliwell. John Helliwell, welcome to Crazy Money. Good to be here. John, before we begin, I just want to clarify, you are not the John Helliwell who was the saxophonist for the 1980s rock band Supertramp. Is that correct? <laughs> That's correct, but he's a cousin. He's and a cousin? Is he really a cousin? We have met and had dinner together, and our families are from the same town in Yorkshire. Who's more famous, you or that John Helliwell? I think you both have your avenues of notoriety. It depends on the circles, but when our boys were growing up, he was a great hero because that was the Super Tramp era. Yeah, I actually took the time to go back and listen to Breakfast in America and some of those tracks, and they struck me at this organic level that they were played so often on the radio in my childhood that they really felt like they were part of my youth. So, exactly. Well, maybe someday I'll get to talk to him. But you, sir, are known for your work and research into happiness. Could you tell me, please, what is the World Happiness Report and who pays for it? The World Happiness Report came about after this is the long route in, but it came after the UN resolution sponsored by Bhutan in June of 2011, adopted unanimously in the General Assembly that happiness and well-being should be made objectives of national policy. Pursuant to that, Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia and the Prime Minister Thinley of Bhutan convened a meeting in Timpu to organize the next steps. How do you make it real? So there was organized a high-level meeting at the United Nations in April 2012 on sustainable well-being and happiness. And it was Jeffrey Sachs' idea in the first instance, and Richard Laird and I joined him as editors to produce a report that assembled the science of how you can figure out how you can measure and how you can improve well-being. And that was the first World Happiness Report. We had a, transferred some of our other grant money to support it, and uh, it's been running in such a way ever since that we now have several foundations that provide our car support. All the authors write as volunteers rather than anybody receiving any revenues, and print production is small. It's made available right from the beginning, 
free to people anywhere in the world. And we've produced the eighth and we're working on the ninth. And what is the final product? What can I learn by, or what can our listeners learn? I've read it, but what can our listeners learn by reading the World Happiness Report? Well, every year we have a different special set of special topics and commission chapters. So we've looked at the happiness of migrants. We've looked at social and physical environments for happiness. Uh, We've looked at happiness in different regions, in different countries. How is Latin America different? How is China different? How is Africa different? Basically, we still are developing the science. What is it that makes for better lives? And it's a growing science. So every year we have more things to report. We go into the uh, neurology, the whole range of aspects of the psychology, different aspects, drivers of happiness that people hadn't paid much attention to in classical times, like generosity, the whole nature of pro-sociality and how doing things with others for others is fundamental. So when you're especially dealing with the newer parts of the science, you then have special chapters each year. We have to admit that the biggest draw to the report is people all over the world wanting to know how their country ranks. And so then the question is, how are they ranked? What does the report do to say some place is happier than some other place? And in the early days, we had people objecting to the Secretary General about the ranking of their country. <laughs> so it's resolutely independent from the UN. But Like the president of a college complaining about his U.S. News and World Report ranking. It's exactly like that. Fortunately, the Secretary General could always say, this book is the product of the scholars who produce it. And although it's launched every year at the United Nations and the events are hosted there, It is not a UN official product, so the UN doesn't have to go through any of the UN approval processes. And that's, of course, a great plus for the report because it can come out quickly and it can clearly not be reflecting anybody's inside or or political views. And more fundamentally, although the press all over the world tends to get this wrong, they think it's based on some index from the six factors we explain happiness with, but it isn't. The rankings are based purely and only on the average values of people's answers to the question. Think of your life as a ladder with the best possible life for you as a 10 and the worst as zero. How would you rate your life these days? And uh, so it's just reporting opinions and it's not our judgment. We use our judgment later in trying to explain it. Every year, it seems that Norway, Denmark, and Finland score at the top of the list. Now, why are the Nordics keeping all this happiness to themselves, and what can be done to break their monopoly? The Nordics themselves are very good about breaking that monopoly, because right after the First World Happiness Report, Mike Viking, a splendid Dane. He's been on the show. There you go. Well, he started the Happiness Research Institute in Denmark with the objective of studying happiness in Denmark and helping develop happiness around the world. He's been on your show, so you can see the spreading activities. Finland, which is ranked at the top the last two or three years, has also been very good at uh, looking outward as well as inward. It's a feature of those countries, although they have a quiet pride. They're not boastful people, either individually in their countries. And so you could see in a whole lot of things, international development issues, acceptance of refugees, 
uh, foreign aid, you'll find those countries at the top. So they're, they're not recipients of other people's products. They're, they're exporters of goodwill. What are the factors going on in the Nordic countries that create a sense of well-being in their lives? Well, we have six factors that we use to explain the differences across countries. And since they rank at the top, then they obviously do pretty well on all of them. And so I'll give you the list and you can see how they do pretty well in all six. And you can see why some other countries don't do well on all six. And so it'll help explain things. There's the two basics that are part of international development and people's thinking forever. One is income per capita and the other is healthy life expectancy. And they continue to be important foundations for a good life. But the other four factors are all more in the social realm having someone to count on in times of trouble, to operate in a trustworthy environment measured by corruption by the data we have, but there are a lot of deeper measures of trust, like would your wallet be returned if you drop it on the street? And then we have generosity. People who live in a generous environment are happier than those who don't. And finally, a sense of freedom to make your key life decisions. That's linked to the idea of having a feeling of ability to do something, to be a, an agent of change in your own life and for others. And the Nordic countries do very high on all of those. Well, so does Switzerland, by the way. I mean, you don't want to think this is just a Nordic phenomenon. The only non-Nordic country that has been top is Switzerland. And I also use the Swiss example by those who say, well, they're all social democratic states up there with big welfare systems. Right, and, right. And uh, I say, well, remember Switzerland. The important point is Switzerland, a very small government country, and the Nordic countries all have societies that, whose members do care about each other. They implement it in different ways, but they care. I heard you on another podcast talking about the concept of wallets being returned. And it's interesting. Now, if I understood you correctly, you're measuring whether people think their wallet would be returned in this survey. <laughs> is that correct? Shall I give you a little bit of history on that one? Well, that's what I was going to get at. The difference between whether or not I think my wallet will be returned and how that relates to whether or not my wallet actually would be returned. So you're curious about that. Well, Reader's Digest dropped wallets in 20 uh, cities famously back in the 1990s. And that was subsequently related empirically looking across countries to the extent to which people trusted each other in these countries and cities. When we were setting up a survey at the turn of the century, my colleagues were suspicious of these trust questions that said, how do you think? Do you think people are trustworthy or not? They said, it's too vague. We don't know what it means. So I said, why don't we ask the wallet question? Because it's very specific. So we said, if you dropped your wallet with $200 in it, how likely is it you think to be returned if it was found by a stranger a police officer, a neighbor, or a clerk in a local store? And the answers differed for those in a Canadian survey. Fortunately, a Toronto newspaper dropped actual wallets. And we knew exactly from these surveys what the expected return if found by a stranger, because of course, an experimentally dropped wallet will be found only by a stranger. <laughs> the actual rate of wallet return was 80%. The expected rate was 24%. The beauty of these wallet questions is that you can answer that question quite precisely. Are people right or wrong about the trustworthiness of others? And the answer is they're wrong, but they're wrong in the right way. 
the people with whom they live are more generous and willing to step out of their... So that's why that result is the one I talk about everywhere, because, of course, it can make people happy just knowing it. But would it make us more happy in general to have more trust than our fellow citizens deserve? Or are we less happy because we undertrust our fellow human being? We are less happy because we undertrust. What you want, of course, is not to be foolishly overtrusting. That can lead you to step out in front of a bus. <laughs> right. It's silly to be less trusting than the situation merits, because what do you do then? You drive the kids to school instead of them walking. You don't smile at a stranger. You turn away. You don't reach out. So you deny yourselves all these broader social connections that are the stuff of a happy life because you're frightened. And it turns out if you don't have enough confidence in the goodwill of your neighbors, you won't reach out to them, they won't reach out to you, and society will be a duller, less friendly, less happy place as a consequence. So to get rid of unjustified fear of others has got to be a dominant objective for people like you and me who talk to lots of people. You say, look seriously at your prejudices about the trustworthiness of others. When we actually sit down and do the science, we find in most of the environments in which we look, people are not nearly as optimistic as they should be of the benevolence of the people with whom they live. And so we can, with clear consciences, say we're not simply whistling in, in the wind saying, oh, everybody's wonderful. We're not saying everybody's wonderful, but we're saying they're way more wonderful than you think they are. So you better take advantage of that and you better contribute to it. One of the dominant themes that you come back to time and again in the World Happiness Report and that the Harvard Longitudinal Study also concluded is that relationships and interaction with friends is one of the most important key factors to happiness. You say that even standing in line waiting for something is a net positive experience if you do it with a friend. Uh, yes, you read that report very carefully, don't you? That's from the latest report. Absolutely. It's people who do these time-use studies the original version of that chapter, they were looking at how various environment, physical environments affected your happiness, where you were walking. Uh, was it green space or was it built space and so on? And they never looked there at who you were doing it with. So I said, could you go back? Because it's a very big one of these mappiness surveys that actually tap people moment by moment and say, where are you now and how are you feeling? So they had a lot of data. And it turned out who you were with and that your relationships with them was much more important than actually what you were doing. As you say, whether you're waiting for a doctor's appointment or even commuting, you can enjoy that more than you'd enjoy something else, having someone whom you like to do it with. There's intense statistical analysis as part of these reports, but it's really the anecdotes that jump out, right, that demonstrate the points. And along those lines in the same section, this was really interesting to me, that a walk or a hike improved my mood by 2%, but a walk with a friend improved my mood by 7.5%. And with a partner, it was an increase of 8.9%. But if you take a trip with a friend, your happiness increases more than if you take a trip with a partner, which means you're less likely to fight with your friend than you are with your wife or husband about the directions on the trip. That's my conclusion. Is that accurate? The thing about these relatively small differences, and some of them are, it's kind of fun to think how they might come about. 
One of the things you learn in this game, however, is that there's a whole lot of variety out there. So that there may be some people who are typical, but there's sure a lot of range of things. And we're looking at the averages. So a whole lot of stories will fit into the between the covers. You mentioned green space. You also mentioned that by 2050, in the report you mentioned, you all mentioned that by 2050, seven out of 10 people in the world will live in cities. Are cities happier places than the countryside? I was just writing yesterday something to go along with the first Indian cities happy happiness report, which is coming out soon. And the answer is, it depends on where you live and what kind of cities there are. For most of the countries of the world, people are happier in the cities than in the countryside. And that's telling you that the country lives, for one reason or another, are often places from which people are fleeing rather than they're fleeing to the cities. Of course, they are expecting more from the cities than the cities can often provide. So you can have people migrating to the cities and finding themselves less happy. And that's indeed the situation in a number of the industrial countries in Canada, United States, Scandinavia, UK. People living in cities are less happy than people living in the rural areas. And the biggest explanatory factor we've found is this sense of community belonging, that in big, fast-paced cities where people are looking at their phones and their coffee cups and trying to not be run over in the traffic while they're rushing to get from one meeting to another, that's last year. (laughs) Right. In a small town, it's quite different. Let me tell you one anecdote that I got from a presentation in Halifax 10 years ago. Atlantic Canada is is sort of the social capital rich part of Canada. It's all pretty good, but Halifax is a city, but it's a city in a very rural place and it's a smaller town. I asked the audience, I said, what would you think if someone gave you a finger in traffic? And uh, there was a pause and then a fellow put up his hand. He said, hi, that'd be someone from out of town. (laughs) which is telling you what's normal in areas where people know each other in neighborhoods in smaller towns well-connected neighborhoods within large cities indeed everybody you see you think of as your friend and you're not going to be rude to your friends you're going to wave to your friends you're going to let them go ahead of you so a place with high social capital is where you treat everybody as though they were a friend in other words in places like that your definition of a stranger is a friend you haven't met yet. So along those lines, you think about the anonymity of social media. Has social media contributed to our happiness or is it pulling us away from the things that make us happier? Social media under COVID have come into their own. Uh, we had a chapter by Jean uh, Twenjin uh, in an earlier report where we showed that the social media, as they were being used, uh, the more they were being used, the worse were the lives of the users. Uh, we did a paper on uh, real friends versus online friends, and we found in Canadian data that your network of real friends, the happier you were, the bigger your network of online friends, no relation or sometimes negative. Now then, you bring along COVID where real friends you can no longer see in the regular ways. Real families are distant from you. And it's been the case that the social media completely changed and they have become the main conduit for achieving social closeness at a time of physical distancing. You think of interviews like this, you think of uh, the Zoom meetings that are going on around the world, you think of families more joined than they were before. 
by caring about each other and being able technologically to reach out and join with them. It's quite remarkable. So I'm hoping one of the longer term changes of all of this will be that people realize that social media have positive uses, which ought to be exploited more fully, while at the same time corralling and putting a stop to the uh, negative uses. Isn't that interesting? Well, while we're talking about COVID, I know you put out a special report in July. What are the main conclusions you found out about how COVID is affecting our happiness globally? Well, too early for conclusions. We have not yet got our first half of the sample from the Gallup World Poll this year. And it's really important to have samples drawn in the same way from the same populations pre-COVID and after COVID. There are many surveys run during COVID But what you really like is sort of the then and now. And it's a mixed bag. There's a lot of places where they're showing some major, seem to be showing major drops. But the more uniform are the surveys, the more we're finding how resilient are life evaluations under COVID. And so it's reflecting something that we've seen in previous crises and disaster areas, that it's a way for people to discover, if you like, that other people will return their wallets. Uh, In other words, you ask people, how are you doing? And they say, well, actually, I feel more connected to my neighborhood than I did before because I can't go very far. And I'm meeting (laughs) them on the streets and we're talking and we're sharing groceries and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, ditto with my friends and uh, even uh, cooking at home, a variety of these things that people were rediscovering the benefits of close-in family life and close-in neighborly life, even when they were denied the chance to see them and hug them and get close to them as they could. Well, that's quite an important support. So there are, in some of these surveys, we're finding that people are rating higher than they did pre-COVID, that they have someone to count on. So even though it can be more difficult to count on them, they're more sure they've got someone to count on. And those are extraordinarily positive. They're suffering a lot more unemployment, lower incomes, more worry. Some of the emotional measures show up in a way you might expect. Worry is higher. Now, stress isn't on average. Some people feel more stressed. But for a whole lot of people, life is much less stressful than it was because they're not torn six ways to breakfast in quite the same way they were before. And those kind of things you don't normally see But when you talk to your neighbors and your family about it, they'll turn up in the conversation. So maybe my life has actually improved because I don't have to commute an hour each way to work like I did pre-COVID. That's certainly true. I'm sure you've talked to others who've told you this, that having tried out working from home, a number of people said, I've had enough of this, I don't want any more. But there are many more people who are saying, well, you know, I do want to spend time with my colleagues, but I sure like the idea of the time working at home. And so a judicious mix is the sort of thing that may well last forever. And it's showing up in everything from design of office spaces by people building new enterprises. It's gonna only happen because it suits the interests of the employees and the employers together. They say we can keep connected emotionally, intellectually, productively, without all having to ship ourselves to the same Midtown office every day. Hey, everybody, it's Paul. We'll be back with John Helliwell in just a minute. Hey, if you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, that is exploring the connection between money and happiness, 
and figuring out the role money should really be playing in our lives, I sure would appreciate it if you do a few things for me. Number one, subscribe or follow the show. This way, every week when a new episode of Crazy Money is loaded, you'll get it automatically in your phone once that app is open. Secondly, write a review. This is really helpful for Apple and other podcast app makers to see which shows are really resonating with their audiences. So your support and endorsement means a lot. Lastly, if you like this episode, share it with three friends. Copy that link, paste it into an email, send it to your three best friends who you know will love the show. I really appreciate your support. Thanks for being here. And now back to John Helliwell. Let's go back to the news from the reports. Now, of course, the news is always who's ranked the highest, but another way to analyze news in a report is what's changed the most. So in the past few years, or even since you started doing the reports, which countries have made the biggest moves upward in happiness and which ones have slid the furthest? The biggest slides are countries where things really do come unravel. And so, you know, if you get a Syria or you know, any of these places where there's been, and the unraveling that is the most damage is when it's people against people. Mm. Earthquakes don't unravel a society. Tsunamis don't unravel a society. So to be hit by a major physical disaster doesn't take you down in the rankings. To be hit by internal conflict does take you down. And so a number of African countries have been, some African countries Uh, Togo, I think, is one where they've come hugely up because they've sort of gradually, as they call it in the African chapter, we had one year waiting for happiness in Africa. It's a process of slow movement, but in some places it's definitely happening. It was mentioned in one report that the United States was ranked number 11 in 2012, but has slipped to number 18. The memo you guys clearly didn't get is that the United States is number one, John. So, uh, (laughs) All right, that one fell a little less flat than the previous one. So what's going on? What are the factors that are affecting a slide for one of the world's most established countries? Well, I think of these factors that are, this. I think the same ones that are generally dropping the ranking are the ones that are monitoring the degree of division within the society, perceived division within the society and act right. division within the society. So polarization of well-being, we find, is bad, so that the more unhappy people you have, the higher the more spread there is in well-being, the less happy the country will be. The less spread there is in life opportunities, the less happy people will be. The more glaring are the income inequalities, the less happy our people will be. The less connected people are to each other in a positive way, the less happy people will be. And the more likely they are to vote for polarizing political movements. So you see, in the United States, has been among the leader in all of those trends. (laughs) We're number one in polarity. (laughs) I told you we were number one. It's close to being true. And you don't want to join all your co-leaders in that move. No, I don't think so. You know, all these numbers, and again, statistics isn't my strong suit, but if you're taking averages for these numbers, inequality hurts your average numbers. Are the people at the top in less equal societies less happy than people at the top in more equal societies? Yes, there is some of this question about asymmetry. I'm talking about the spread being bad. And you're saying, you mean spread at the top, spread at the bottom? Does inequality make even the most advantaged in those societies less happy, I guess, is a more succinct way to ask the question. Yes, I think that's true. I could go and dig out the numbers, 
I guess you're saying basically take the top quintile of the happiest fifth of the population and then compare that across. That's interesting. We could actually test that one. My guess is it's true, but as your question suggests, it's not as likely to be true as the same thing for the average. Because people do often rank themselves to others. You know, I want to be top of the heap. Right. In some sense, they want to be top. There's a selfish way of putting that. There's an unselfish way. The unselfish way said life is about purpose and achieving and setting goals and getting there. And so you want to succeed, but you don't have to succeed more than anybody else. And so that competitive aspect is not a strong support for enduring happiness but it clearly is part of what makes people do what they do. Let's talk about work and happiness for a few minutes. How does trust in the workplace affect the happiness of the worker? Two questions there. One is, does it? And the answer is yes, a great deal. The other is, what are the channels through which that happens? And one example that we looked at at one time was these surgical procedure errors that can occur in surgical procedures, the guidelines. And when you unpack where they worked and how they worked, the places where they worked best and the part of it that was most important was the timeout, where people around the operating room pulled down their masks and talked to each other face to face and introduced themselves and discussed the procedure. And it turned out to be the case that these human connections flattened the power structure And by flattening the power structure, it enabled somebody lower in that rigid hierarchy that often exists in an operating room to ask the surgeon if he really meant to pick up the scalpel by that end. And uh, (laughs) that's true everywhere. I asked some Danish business leaders when I was speaking to the business summit in Denmark, because this was their summit celebrating innovation. So there were prizes for the most innovative ideas and firms. So I got to talk to some pretty interesting people. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's the secret to this? And he said, it is the fact that we are all in this together and we're all learning from each other. And so he said, there are some material things about that. We all eat at the same lunchroom, but the important point is we all talk to each other. And so design teams, you know, you don't get a rigid sending of an idea and a detailed thing down to somebody who's just supposed to do it, shaking their head about why would they do it this way? The people talk to each other so that the actual details in the physical operation, and it works both ways, right? You can see a better way of doing things than the present way you've been told. If you believe you're not trying to get the other person's goat, you're trying to make a better product, then you ship it all back upstairs. And so there's a two-way flow of trust and information and innovation is faster, right? You don't worry about all those things, that, about a power structure. You don't have silos in a high-trust environment. You don't have a, I wouldn't ever say anything to my boss about this because I might get in trouble. So they're happier places. And, of course, we all know that circle as well. That happier teams work better. And you could imagine why, right? Sure, you have more laughs and you take more time off. People have said this in schoolrooms. Someone has said the schoolroom that has the fastest learning is not the one traditionally where people aren't laughing. It's the one where people are laughing. And that's the same thing in a workplace. Where they're having fun, 
they're not having fun at the expense of the job. The fact that they're having fun illustrates the connections between them that enable them to do a good job. And of course, they come home at the end of the day much happier. I can give you something on the statistical front, if you want, from the United States, where they study weekend effects. And we've written papers both in the World Happiness Report and outside on this. There's a weekend effect in the United States where people are happier on weekends than they are during the week. Even though, you know, not everybody works a five-day week, but there's enough of them to do that it's a material thing. From the Gallup World Poll or the Gallup Daily Poll in the United States, there was a question, do you regard your immediate superior at work more as a partner or a boss? A binary question. Nice. So they're just dividing people into two groups. I can think of a few other blanks you could have used in that, that survey. Yes, yes. Boss is the pejorative word here. But yeah, you, I, I, you could fill, fill in the blank, sir. Fill in the blank. You, you choose your as many adjectives you want to write them in. They should do that in the survey in order to give it more points. <laughs> well, you can guess where this story is going, that for the people who regard their immediate superior as a partner rather than a boss, there is no weekend effect. They're no happier in the weekday. Oh, that's interesting. And that's pretty strong, right? Because it's a significant effect. So it's not the nature of work itself. It's not the fact that we work. It's the kind of work we do and the kind of meaning we extract from work that determines our happiness or not. Absolutely. In a way, work has got a bad rep because, you know, is it work or play? He said, no, no, that's not the way to think about it. All of life is play. It's play with different objectives and working with different people to do things. And that should be the way to think about life. It's play. It should be fun. And some bits of it are not as much fun as others. Everybody knows, right? When you're learning a new language, you've got to do those grammar exercises. Uh, producing a widget has got some, somebody has to do the sweeping up and I'd rather be doing something else. But that's all part of it too. A really high trust workplace and a really flat structure workplace, a really happy one, is where you're likely to find somebody right up high in the food chain out there with a broom sweeping up, in part to talk to the other people who are sweeping up and part just to show that uh, they are all in this together and you end up learning something in the process. From what aspects of your work do you derive the most meaning? I derive the most optimism from uh, the ability to still find in the data essential goodness in people's motivations and actions in a way that belies what they hear uh, through the media and uh, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. That <laughs> right. may be true for trying to sell newspapers, but it's bad for society. And so those media outlets that actually then ask themselves, phone in if you've seen the kindness of strangers and a story you want to share. And people do, and people want to do that. And it's enormously important to hear that. Well, you ask me what's most important to me. In a sense, a lot of what we're doing is that kind of thing. We're essentially analyzing, but trying to do it in a scientific way. It's the science that delivers the results. It's the stories that pass on those results. So people are more likely to listen to you if you've got the science behind you, that this isn't just wishful thinking. This is the way people are. So for me, the most important thing is to develop the hard science and then deliver it to people in ways that enable them to have happier lives. What's not to like about that? 
you know, if you didn't want to do all that math, you could just start a podcast and interview people like you instead of, you know, crunching all those numbers. Just a thought, just a thought. (laughs) So you seem to be a pretty happy person. Does studying happiness and being reminded with that data that people are better than we might give them credit for, does that affect your mood and your behavior outside of work? Yes, both. I was walking along the beach yesterday and there was somebody I saw who was picking up garbage along, you know, this little flotsam and jetsam on the beach or maybe somebody's candy wrapper or something. And so 10 years ago, I wouldn't have done this. I turned to her and I said, thank you for picking up that garbage. And the woman lit up and said, thank you. And so that idea of actually cherishing other people's good works and, and not just quietly cherishing them, but reach out and saying so. Well, an introvert, and scholars tend to be introverted in this way, are more inclined not to reach out and take the extra step to connect with other people. Now that I have learned what I've learned, I do it all the time. I become the way my wife has always been. She's always been a reacher out, and she's been a beacon of happiness. It took me a while to understand why this was happening. And of course, she's doing all the things that we recommend people should do. She's always done them and created these little puddles of happiness wherever she goes because she connects with people. And I now ape her much more than I did before. I go out of my regular path to make those connections. And of course, I feel good about doing it. So it isn't as though it's a high price thing to do. It turns out to be one of those win-wins that a good society is full of. Well, that leads me to the next question, which is just one of a couple more we have left. Assuming that the society where I live is fixed, whether I live in America or Finland or Canada, what can I do to improve my own personal happiness, assuming I can't affect the structure of society? Oh, but you can affect the structure of society because the structure, this is another thing we've learned in the research, that life is local. The overall institutions do affect the framework within which we operate and the information we get and so on. And you're right, we can't change that. But we can change how we operate within those. And so when I talk to local groups and neighborhood groups, and they're often the ones who are most keen to know and to ask the kind of question you're talking about, it turns out there's an infinite variety of things you can do with your neighbors, for your neighbors. And of course, it doesn't take a lot of leadership. It takes nothing much more but a few steps and a few smiles to actually get micro connections going in the small and simply changing your behavior just to say, wait a minute, And I do this challenge to people when I speak to them. I say, do this for me. And this is one time when people took a lot of elevator rides, so they don't do it as much. (laughs) Yes. But I said, take your next six elevator rides and uh, use them to start a conversation. And instead of looking at that elevator uh, inspection certificate or (laughs) or your smartphone and report back. And sometimes people do report back and they said, Actually, our elevator got to the bottom and nobody got off. We were just all talking and we just wanted to keep on talking. So we had to get out of the elevator and finish the conversation. That's funny. I think in some places they'd think you're weird, but that's okay. Nobody gets hurt. And I say, be be aware of this, that some people will think you're weird, but it's a lovely kind of weird. And if on balance, (laughs) if balance other people appreciate it, well, isn't it nice to be weird? Well, maybe this last question isn't as profound as I thought it was going to be because of what you just said about life being local. And that's something to really keep in mind and meditate on because it really does empower the individual that it is really up to us to create our own community, our own friendships, our own societies. 
and break down walls that are sometimes just perceived as opposed to actual. But the question I was going to end on, if you were designing a society from the ground up in order to maximize well-being, what would it look like? Hmm. It has to have a lot of organization these days because we're in a complex world. It would probably be more mindful and respectful of these local influences. So it would be less top-down and more horizontal in its structure because that gives people more freedom about how to organize their own workplace. So there has been a movement to a more vertical structure in business and to some extent in government and in schools and in, you know, over-administration is something that happens. Operations have risk committees. Everyone's got a risk committee now. You shouldn't need a risk committee because they stop things going. They don't facilitate them. So it would be a society where people weren't trying to cover their rear ends. They weren't trying to make sure there were no mistakes. They were reversing the way in which they think of things. They were trying to enable innovation, enable connections, not just to make them safer or more secure or more under control. So it's a freer, more responsible, more caring uh, society, one that assumes and admits the essential goodness of people. So you've got to have that level of trust. And we know in some parts of the world and some parts of society, the trust can get so low that you're not going to get there from here just by anyone doing it. And so these are often most disadvantaged indigenous communities, other communities where it's most important these changes happen. They have to come from the bottom up. And so it won't be me or anyone else saying, here's how the society will look. I say, no, that's not the way it works. This society is going to be one that admires, respects, and enables innovation from those who need it in the circumstances where they most need it. And so it's the happiest indigenous communities in Canada are the ones where they are in charge and developing themselves, not just to help themselves, but to help others as well, where they think of themselves as leaders at home and leaders to help others. And because it's bottom up, you can't have a blueprint that's dropped on them by me or anyone else. Interesting. Well, I've really enjoyed reading the World Happiness Reports and some of your research. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the World Happiness Report? I have a website that takes them to a lot of these papers, some of which are more accessible and more interesting than others. There's the odd conversation with people like you where you're good enough to manage it to get something <laughs> more accessible. Uh, the World Happiness Reports themselves, we take pretty strong line because we get a lot of researchers writing these. I said, dude, don't write these like research reports. You throw all your references into endnotes and that people should be able to read this who have absolutely no technical training. So you put it in a little box and say, this is what those vertical lines mean, et cetera, et cetera. So we try and make it more accessible. And of course, we do all we can to help people like Mike Viking, who are you know busy writing books in 35 languages, taking the science and delivering it out to people in ways that they are amusing and enlivening and empowering for them. So it's a multi-stage process. So I send them off to people like Mike. Cool. Well, I will put a link to the World Happiness Report in the show notes and just want to say thank you very much for your work and for your time today. I've enjoyed speaking with you. My pleasure. It really has been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
All right. Love talking to John Helliwell. I've heard about him for a long time. We tried to get him on a year ago. Logistically, just kind of fell apart. Glad I had the chance to have him on. Let's get to takeaways. How profound, first of all, this is my first takeaway. How profound was John's answer when I asked him, what can each of us do, assuming that our societies that we lived in are fixed? So first of all, I didn't mean to suggest that there's nothing any of us can do to affect change in our worlds or in our countries. What I meant was, you know, on a broad scale, we're not going to change the format of the way the United States or Canada or wherever you live looks, right? But I thought his response was brilliant and beautiful. He said, life is local. Life is local. And I was reminded of something that my friend and mentor, Al Bot told me. When I moved back to Atlanta, oh, almost 10 years ago now, I grew up here and I expected on some level to be embraced by the community and the family that I had when I left here in 1987. Like on some level, I was going to go back to family parties with my parents and aunts and uncles who aren't living anymore. And I said to Al, I was like, Al, I'm just waiting to find the community that we're going to fall into. And he's like, Paul, you do not find in this life. You create, you create. And it was like, oh, I get it. My uncle Fred's not having barbecues at his house anymore because he's no longer alive and that house doesn't exist. But I'm now the age he was when he was hosting those parties. And I have a house and I have a patio and I know where to get barbecue. So why don't I have a party? And that's what I think John Halliwell was talking about. But it doesn't even have to be that, that much effort. It's a matter of walking out the street and picking up the trash in your neighborhood or knocking on the door of your neighbor and just checking on them to see if they're okay while wearing a mask, while wearing a mask. I'm just saying, I thought what he was saying was profound. And a lot of us get stuck in our own worlds, especially now during COVID, when we have the opportunity to be proactive and to be the force of good, even in very, very small ways in the world. So that's number one. The second one is people, 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 the true source of happiness and contentment in life. As measured by the World Happiness Report and by the Harvard Longitudinal Study and a whole bunch of other studies is the quality of your relationships. At my rehearsal dinner, my buddy Stephen Edgerton said something. He was giving the toast and he said, Paul invests in his relationships. And I was like, wow, that was something that I didn't expect to hear, but I was really proud to hear that about me, about like the fact that one of my friends would recognize that I do care about my relationships and I do try really hard to sustain them. And years later, now that I'm studying happiness, it's interesting to see like, oh, well, those relationships have paid off. I'm still friends with those guys. I'm still friends with buddies from college. I'm still in touch with people I went to business school with on a regular basis. And they make my life so much richer And those parties that my Uncle Fred used to throw, that I try to throw now, that my friends try to throw, getting people together, giving yourself the opportunity to be around people you love will pay off over and over and over again. Observation slash takeaway number three. This is what I've concluded after reading all these happiness reports and even talking to Mike Viking, the founder of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. I've decided it's not a coincidence that the Danes, the Finns, and the Norwegians are finishing at the very top of these reports every year. I think I think they're up to something. I think they're hoarding happiness. I think they've created a happiness monopoly there on that giant peninsula they got over there in the Scandinavia area. And I think they're up to something suspicious. They're hoarding happiness. They're monopolizing it and keeping it from the rest of us. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about it, but I'm on to you, Mike Viking. 
Don't you think we don't see what's going on over there? All right, that's it. Uh, We'll leave it on that completely uninsightful note. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Crazy Money. As I said, sure would appreciate if you would subscribe, follow, and write a kind review of the show. means a whole lot to me. Thanks to my editor, Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart.